If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we've been studying in a series on the Ten Commandments. You heard Brother Jim mention Reformation Day. It is uh, today that Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg Castle Church door. I had the great privilege of going there on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in uh, 2017. So here we are 504 years later, and we are Baptist, Protestant, because in the efforts to reform the church, the Catholic church, um, they were rejected. Uh, the, the effort of Luther was always to bring the church back together in unity. Um, but in the rejection of the return to the word of God, uh, we stand firm on the word and ask that the Lord speak to us through his word. So if you want to learn more about church history, you can always pick up uh, Brother Matt Toombs' uh, Adult Bible Fellowship. Uh, also, uh, incidentally, next Sunday, we are offering another Discover LBC. We have four points of emphasis here. Seek, study, serve, and share. And on a monthly basis, we're going to offer a Discover LBC class where you can pick up at any time. And next Sunday, I'll be teaching about study. And we pair that with a very quick history of the church. And so if you're interested in learning more about uh, church history and the Protestant Reformation and why we study God's word and stick to his word alone, uh, come next Sunday to Discover LBC. And I'm sure Brother Matt will receive you after that on the 14th. So last week, I got a little feedback, and it was relatively positive about how we stood to read God's Word. And so I want to make an effort to do the same thing this Sunday. Let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, and we are going to read verse 15 of Exodus chapter 20. Unless we are studying John's gospel at some point and going verse by verse, this may be the shortest Bible reading for which you will ever stand. Four words from the word of God. Hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 20 and verse 15. You shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's different. It's a little different, but let me remind you These words came with thunder and lightning, power, trumpets. This is God's word. And as we've studied the Ten Commandments, we've seen how God himself spoke audibly. We've been trying over the course of the Ten Commandments series to learn as a congregation to try and memorize the Ten Commandments. Luther also uh, famously would uh, catechize. He would teach children. They would come uh, to the house and he would have, um, he and Katrina, they would have the kids over and they would teach the children about God's word with questions. And the question I would love for our congregation to be able to answer is, what is the law of God as stated in the Ten Commandments? All right, so I'll try and help you along. Let's say them out loud. The first commandment, you shall have no... Yeah, very good. The second commandment, you shall not make... Yeah, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And the third commandment is you shall not misuse... Misuse the name of the Lord your God. 
The fourth commandment is remember the by keeping it holy. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. By the way, you're doing better and better every week. I'm noticing. The fifth commandment is honor. That one, because it starts with honor and the other one with remember, I feel like we're starting to really get to those. Honor your father and your mother. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Yeah. Brother Wayne taught that one. And then you shall not commit adultery last Sunday. And then this Sunday, you shall not steal. And then the ninth commandment, you shall not give false testimony. And the tenth, you shall not covet. Thank you for continuing to work on that. Maybe some of you will want to do a little homework. And who knows, maybe at some point for the children in the room, maybe we'll have a little prize. If you can come up to Pastor Jason and share all 10 of the commandments with me when the series is over. I know the kids can do it. All right. The big picture question. Some of you big kids are like, wait, I want a prize. Uh, I don't have one for you, but, but you can still come and share them with me. It'll make me very, very happy. The big picture question that I want to consider today is this question of what is the so-called threefold division of the law? Theologians have typically divided the Old Testament law into moral, ceremonial, and civil components, threefold division. Now, we're not going to spend uh, too much time on this today, but it is important. You see, although you will never see the scripture refer to itself with these categories, okay? This is an interpretive method of seeing back at the many laws that were given in the Old Testament, over 600. It is helpful and crucial to our understanding of biblical ethics from a New Testament perspective because Christ's coming didn't abolish the law, it fulfilled the law. So let's consider first the ceremonial law. These are the laws which pertain to Israel's worship, also their dietary restrictions. These laws prefigured Christ. Think, for example, of the blood sacrifices, the priestly offerings to atone for sin. What Scripture teaches us is that Jesus fulfilled the law regarding sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says, Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the blood of bulls and goats would have never made perfect those for whom they were sacrificed. They always were pointing to Christ. The New Testament writers refer to the sacrificial system as shadows, but the substance, they say, belongs to Christ. For example, in Colossians 2, verse 17, these, the sacrificial laws, are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus' once-for-all atoning sacrifice for sins and the sacrificial system, because of what he did, will never need to be reinstated. Jesus gave a once-for-all sacrifice for sins, and because of that, the sacrificial system never needs to be reinstated for men to be made right with God. 
not in the Catholic Mass, which they believe. They are offering Christ's blood over and over again as though he needs to be sacrificed again on the cross. And not in any future ethnic Israel state. There will never be a need to go back to the offering of bulls and goats. You see, to insist on that, to insist on returning to the ceremonial law is to misunderstand the once-for-all nature of Christ's atonement for sin in which he fulfilled these laws. Then there's secondly, the civil law. Some people call it the judicial law. These are the detailed duties of the people of Israel as a nation state. They were an interpretation of the moral law for the specific people under which uh, this state had been established. Every civil law would have had a moral law underneath it. This was like case law. Okay, so every civil law had a moral law that was supporting and underneath it. Augustine once said that civil law apart from moral law is no law at all. So everything was based on a moral law, but this is the moral law applied. And in the Old Testament, specifically applied to the people of Israel under a theocracy. God was the king of the nation. Now, Philip Ryken explains, quote, the, the civil law has also expired, but for slightly different reasons. The church is not a state. We do have a king, namely King Jesus, but his kingdom for now, until he comes again, is spiritually expanding. Therefore, although the civil laws of the Old Testament contain principles that are useful for governing nations today, God's people are no longer bound by specific regulations. And the basic error tied to this way of thinking would be known as theonomy. That would be God law, theos God, namas law. That God uh, would give us civil laws for our nation. But as one Protestant reformer recognized, to do this, this kind of view, theonomy, would be perilous, and he called it seditious, because the ceremonial law... The civic law has been superseded by Christ, both of them. Today, the people of God are governed instead of the civic law by church discipline, which is based on the moral law and has spiritual rather than civil consequences. Now, we certainly believe the state has a place to punish wrongdoers. If you rob somebody, I'm going to let the cops come and arrest you. But the church has discipline over the moral command not to steal. And you also would be accountable. We would one to another for these sins. You see the, the distinction now. Then there is, thirdly, the moral law. What remains of these three is the moral law. This is often what people have in mind when you hear somebody talk about the law. When they say the law, and they're referring back to the Old Testament, since we no longer observe the sacrificial system, and since we don't generally worry about mixing fabrics or eating pork, we tend to narrow the scope of our thinking to the moral law. So David Jones defines this category, moral law, as those which are based on, reflect, and demand conformity to God's own moral character. 
As such, since man is made in God's image, the moral laws are written on man's heart, and they are timeless. Romans chapter 2 and verse 14 says, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. As we've noted before, the moral law has been around since creation, well before Mount Sinai. But we often will look to the Ten Commandments when we think about the moral law, because as our Presbyterian brothers and sisters say in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. This is a good place to get a summary understanding of the moral law of God. It's a one-stop shop to see what is timelessly pertinent to us as human beings. These laws were around before, at, and after Mount Sinai. They are a revelation of God's character, and as such, they are timeless and unchanging because God himself never changes. David Jones also makes clear in his little book, An Introduction to Biblical Ethics, that although the Ten Commandments are a helpful summary of the moral law, there are other places where these types of laws are seen in the Old Testament, and he gives five ways of identifying them. First, usually it comes with some sort of theological justification when it's given. Like, for example, in Exodus 20 and verse 2, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's this explanation that precedes it. Another indicator is that moral law is given in an exceptional manner of delivery. I just mentioned that this morning about thunder, lightning, flashes, like God speaking. This is a big deal, like flashing lights. Pay attention. Number three, the moral law is evident prior to the giving of the Mosaic law. We've been mentioning how it was around since creation because God instilled it in our hearts. And then fourth, moral law is reiterated throughout Scripture, which you'll find in the New Testament. And then five, it is possible, it is possible to apply the moral law universally. That is why we find that murder is considered universally wrong across the globe. The moral law is written on our hearts. Do you have an atheist friend? Maybe they leave their wallet on top of their car. Go take their wallet from them. Steal it. And then say, why should I have to give it back to you? On what moral basis do I need to give you this back? Or perhaps have this conversation asking the question, if life is really about survival of the fittest, right? Are you tracking with Darwin? Is that what you believe? If that's what life is all about, then what did the Nazis do wrong? I would argue that that point of view the Nazis held was a natural byproduct of atheism and anti-supernatural thinking. Without God, morality is only, as atheists will often say, a social construct. But my question is, who are we to say that our society 
got it right and your society is wrong? On what basis can we claim that their morals are worse than our morals? If there is no objective, supernatural morality, then as I see it, might does make right. Okay, so maybe do that conversation with them and don't actually go and steal their wallet because that would be breaking the eighth commandment to which we turn now. How do you like that for a transition? Don't actually steal your friend's wallet. Say, my pastor told me, no, don't do that. As is the case with the other commandments, you are by now coming to expect that there is always a broader application to these commands than may first meet the eye. Ernest Reisinger has a helpful little book. I'm actually borrowing it from uh, Alex Kokolius right now. And um, I really like that Ernest Reisinger puts in various passages of Scripture as supports for the various sins that are forbidden in these commandments and the various duties that are required in them. There's the positive, what to do because of the command, and there's the negative, what not to do. By the way, if you want to hear a neat personal story, uh, go talk to Alex and Gail about uh, Ernest Reisinger. I'll let them share with you in some time. But nevertheless, allow me to share uh, some of the broader ways which we should be looking at this command. Ernest Reisinger's list of these broad applications. He points out first the obvious, duty one, the sin, or excuse me, sin number one, the sin of theft and robbery. Ephesians 4, 28 says, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Then, of course, there is the sin of receiving something that's stolen. That's what we call being an accessory these days. The partner of a thief, Proverbs 29 says, hates his own life. He hears the curse but discloses nothing. Third, there's the sin of using false weights and false measures. Proverbs 11.1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but just weight is his delight. Leslie Thrasher, I think, illustrates this sin quite well in a a classic uh, Saturday evening post cover. I don't know if you can see the butcher there. They got chicken or whatever that is on on the weight, and he's kind of nudging it down with his finger, but he's getting nothing by on the little lady because she's got her finger up on the other side. It's humorous, but it's human nature. Doesn't this describe the fall? Are we all not prone to want to cheat just a little in the weights and measures we use? There is fourthly, the sin of unfaithfulness in contracts. Psalm 37, 21. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. Let's be true to our contracts with others. Fifth, the sin of extortion. Jesus pronounced a woe to the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew 23. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence, extorting from the people. Sixth, there is the sin of usury. The psalmist in Psalm 15 asks the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may dwell in your tent? Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And then the psalmist describes 
a righteous person. And he ends in verse 5 of Psalm 15 with this. He does not charge interest when he lends money. He does not take bribes to testify against the innocent. The one who lives like this will never be upended. The principle here is not that every kind of interest charging is wrong necessarily, but that predatory loans or taking advantage of the poor or charging interest to a brother or sister in Christ who is in need, this is a violation of God's law. Adam Osborne actually did a great job in our ABF explaining this nuance here, usury, taking advantage, exorbitant interest is included as a sin in this command. Then there's the sin of bribery. Job chapter 15 says, the company of the godless is barren and fire consumes the tents of bribery. Number eight, there's the sin of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him. James chapter five says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached their ears, reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Jesus is concerned, excuse me, James is concerned, but of course the Lord is concerned as well with how we treat those who work for us. The laborer is worth their wage. Let us be known as Christians for taking care of those who work for us and treating them fairly. Number nine, there's a sin of idleness. Proverbs 18.9 says, The one who is lazy in his work is brother to a vandal. You see, this came up last week as well. Idleness can really get us in trouble. Let's be reminded that part of the fourth command is six days you shall labor and the seventh you shall rest. Let's remember that we are to work. Be busy. And that doesn't mean if you're retired, there aren't things you can be doing. Let's just not be idle, lazy, because what happens is we tend to wander into sin. Idleness can lead to thievery, and idleness can lead to adultery, as we learned last week as well. In addition to these nine sins that were listed, Reisinger lists six duties. You can see these as the flip side of that same coin of what we've been looking at already. There is first, uh, number 10, the duty to be truthful, faithful, and just in our contracts, okay? So if you're not to be unjust, you are duty bound to be just in your dealings. Zechariah 8 verses 16 and 17. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Let's let our Christian contract making be known for its truthfulness and our faithfulness to our word. Number 11, there's the duty to render to everyone his due. Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. And honor, to whom honor is owed. And owe no one anything, Paul continues, except to love one another in verse 8. Listen, yes, tax evasion is breaking the eighth commandment. Number 12, there's the duty to make restitution 
of goods unlawfully obtained. Now, this is a good example as we're thinking through these of a case law in Leviticus that prescribes a specific amount of restitution. Now, does that mean today that all restitution laws should be whatever you stole plus a fifth? Could be. That's a principle, but it doesn't have to be. We're not bound to that. So here is the principle. Restitution should be paid. Leviticus 6, 2 through 5. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, if, if any of all the things that people do and sin thereby... If he has sinned and realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. So by way of comparison in the New Testament, when we find Zacchaeus robbing people, Zacchaeus pays back fourfold what he stole. Luke 19, 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus also made restoration. The point is simply this. There is a duty required of us when we obtain something lawfully to make restitution for it. There's also, number 13, the duty to give and lend freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others. Two very clear caveats, but helpful. Luke chapter 6 says, Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. Verse 38, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Christians should not be stingy. Galatians chapter 6, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 1 John 3 verse 17 If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Then there is the duty to be frugal. Some of you, like, are nudging your spouse. I see you out there, right? The duty to be frugal. Jesus himself kept leftovers from a a meal that fed thousands. John 6, he says, when they'd eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. Proverbs 21, 20, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Now, there is a duty to be frugal, but just a side note for all of you penny pinchers who are really, really loving this point right here. This can be taken to an extreme. In fact, Thomas Watson, in his book about the Ten Commandments, he warns against the sin of miserliness under the Eighth Commandment. So this is frugal gone wild, okay? This is too much. He argues that one way we would rob would be to rob from ourselves in a sense 
disrespecting the gift of the estate with which God has entrusted you as a steward. You may possibly have been extraordinarily prospered by God, and you can't even bring yourself to enjoy life a little bit because you're so tight-fisted. Perhaps, and trust me, I realize this doesn't tend to be our problem in America. Not generally. But maybe there is someone here who needs to hear it. Perhaps you have made an idol of having money in the bank. Some people, probably most people, make an idol out of things and possessions to the point that they don't have any money in their banks. And in fact, most people owe others money. But maybe, just maybe, you today need a reminder that it doesn't matter how many zeros are at the end of your bank account, you can't take it with you when you go. So be frugal, yes. Don't waste, yes. But we also are not to be so parsimonious that we never enjoy what God has given us or we don't give generously to others. Finally, Reisinger lists the duty to further, by lawful means, the wealth of others as well as our own. Leviticus 25. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Exodus 23 and verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox, whose ox? Your enemy's ox. Or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. We're to be looking out for the good of everyone. Philippians 2 verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These are the sins and duties of the eighth commandment. Now, some of us are tempted to say, we're good here. We're good. You know, uh, there's usually not a lot of pushback about the Eighth Commandment. In fact, one uh, survey that I read said that 85% of Americans are all okay with God requiring us not to steal, like God needs an approval rating to command it. But the, the point is this, most people are cool with the command not to steal. Why? Well, we like our stuff. We like private property, and we don't like it when other people take our stuff. But I believe this can be one of the places where we are most blind to our own thieving ways, to our own error. Of course, that's the case with all the commandments, isn't it? Paul spoke about this to the Jews in Romans chapter 2. If you want to follow along with me where I'm heading in this message, you can go to Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. And he says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Let me put a pause right there. You see, the Jews were pretty proud of the fact that they knew the law backwards and forwards. They probably came to church and memorized the Ten Commandments. <laughs> they were privileged to have had this gift from God, and they were convinced 
of their superiority to the Gentiles because they had the law. They thought that merely having the law is what made them good people with a capital G, and everyone else around them was just beneath them because they had the law. But Paul says to them, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Now, this sounds a little ridiculous, right? You're literally preaching against stealing while stealing. But I have witnessed this happen firsthand. I once watched a sermon via live stream where a pastor preached an entire message on the Eighth Commandment while simultaneously plagiarizing the whole thing. He didn't merely forget to credit someone for a list like Ernest Reisinger's. He wasn't just using somebody else's outline or quoting from a commentary and forgetting to give credit. He preached the sermon as though he had written the whole thing and let every, every church member walking out the door thank him on the way out for his hard work when he had simply downloaded, lightly edited, printed, and preached another person's message as though it was his own. Now, I don't think for a minute that that pastor believed he was justified before God because he was such a good non-thief. I, I truly believe he understood the gospel, but he was blind to his own disobedience here. Even knowing the gospel didn't keep him from being blind to his own breaking of the eighth and the ninth commandments. Incidentally, that's why we do need biblical accountability and why our church is served well to have a plurality of elders to which we hold one another accountable and church discipline in accordance with Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5 but I digress. (laughs) I want to get specifically to the point. You see, there is a very real danger that Paul is addressing to the Jewish people. He's saying that if we go to grab onto the law to instruct others with it without understanding that one of the main purposes of the law is an understanding that we are sinners and that we have all fallen short of God's standards, we will find ourselves hypocritically driving others away from faith in God and the good news to which the law points, the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, the law without the gospel is like a double-edged blade without a handle on it. Same thing happens, Paul says, If you were to preach against adultery or any of the other commandments without recognizing that having and knowing the Ten Commandments doesn't save us. The problem is complicated because so often we are blind to disobedience. He continues in verse 22, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Here's the summary. You who boast in the law, Dishonor God by breaking the law. You see, if it's all about keeping the commandments and obedience, you'll never do it well enough. And you will dishonor God. And what he says in verse 24 is, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you Jews. He's saying, if you were to try and justify yourself by your law keeping... You would only serve to show 
what a wretch you really are, and simultaneously, hypocritically, defame the name of God while you're at it. If it's all law and not that to which the law points, you've missed it, he's saying. He says in verse 25, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You might as well be a Gentile, Paul is saying, if you can't keep the whole law, which of course nobody can. Paul says that clearly as he summarizes later in chapter 3 in verse 9 and 10. He asks then, are the Jews any better off? No. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And then he later finishes the argument in verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God gave the law to show that we are all accountable to him. Even the ones with the privilege of having God tell them himself failed. And so the whole world says, wow, we're all accountable. And then he says in verse 24, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The eighth commandment and all the commandments, oh, they ought to be preached. But the preaching of the commands should ultimately serve to magnify the holiness of God, the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior, as question 15 puts it in our catechism. So we are not surprised then to find the conclusion of Paul's argument here in Romans 1, 2, and 3 when we get to verse 21. He's been going to great lengths to disavow the Jewish people of believing that merely having the law means that they are all hunky-dory with God. And he's also made it clear that not only have they broken the law, but that Gentiles are pretty bad off as well. If you go back and read Romans chapter 1, what then? He gives them this hope. In my opinion, the best paragraph in the whole Bible. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This text right here helps us conclude where we began today. The Old Testament law and prophets point to something. They bear witness to it, he says in verse 21. They point to Jesus Christ. You can't understand redemption, propitiation, the kind of forbearance that God has shown over former sins in the, in the past without the Old Testament. Paul later goes on to show in Romans, you can't understand faith, grace, the sovereign mercy of God, promise without the Old Testament either. The law, he says, however, increased our awareness of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, verse 20. The law pointed us to our need for an atoning sacrifice. We're sinners. We need someone to save us. And the bulls and the goats, they ain't going to do it. We need a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus was the point of the law and the prophets. Paul says so in his many words. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. Christ is the end. That word means the goal or the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Friend, if you're here today and you're tempted to believe that your own awareness of the Ten Commandments or a basic moral ethic is what Christianity is about, you've missed the point today. You've missed the point of the series of the Ten Commandments. I once heard a parent tell me they were bringing their children to church to teach them good morals. Not a bad start, but unfortunately, the more we learn about the commandments, in addition to proving our guilt, they make us want to rebel even more. Paul says, the commandment said, you shall not covet. And all of a sudden, I find myself coveting more. Like that's in our nature. Don't tell me what I can't do. That is the human heart. So the The Ten Commandments, coming to church, that's great. But if you come trying to grab on to the Ten Commandments to think, I'm going to walk out of here and live a better life because I'm just going to pick myself up by the bootstraps and listen to the Ten Commandments, you've missed Christ. Jesus is the point of the law because nobody can do that perfectly. Only one has. Jesus Christ. It's what theologians call the great exchange. We have an alien righteousness, not mm, extraterrestrial alien, outside of ourselves righteousness. It comes from outside of us. It is Jesus's own righteousness. I love the hymn, the solid rock, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We have his obedience to the law that we received and he took our punishment. He was our substitute. He obeyed the law perfectly. So what is the answer today? Trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, even perhaps the sin of disobedience to the eighth commandment. You see, Jesus has a history of saving thieves like us. I want to close with Luke chapter 23, 
beginning in verse 32. Two others, Luke writes, who were criminals, Mark and Matthew's gospel mentioned they were thieves, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals, the thieves, who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. and There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Ceremonial long, it's all there. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. The innocent for the guilty. The just for the unjust. This is the good news. Jesus died and rose again. So you can be forgiven and you can live eternally with him. Oh, godless one, oh, idolater, blasphemer, Sabbath breaker, disrespectful child, murderer, adulterer, thief, liar, coveter, will you put your faith in Jesus today?